Mason welcoming you to chapter 143 of A History of England. We've reached the point where Lord Salisbury had formed the government, the first truly Tory administration, for nearly 60 years. That's in the sense that he was solidly conservative, little given to such liberal notions as electoral reform or conciliation of the people, as his predecessors Peel, Derby and Disraeli had been. To be fair to him, minority government was a poor reward for all Salisbury's clever footwork over the 1884 Reform Act. You'll remember that he'd secured key concessions from Gladstone's government that had secured his position in the Conservative Party and made him look like a real winner. Winners get to lead secure governments with a solid majority behind them. Leading a minority government wasn't in any case a tenable position in the long run. He'd only come to office because Irish MPs had become disillusioned over Gladstone's failure to deliver progress towards home rule, Irish self-government, and they'd been angered by his readiness to use coercion legislation against their country. They joined the Conservatives for a key vote in the Commons, which, thanks to some Liberals rebelling against their own party, the opposition had won, forcing Gladstone's government to resign. But that still left the Liberals with the majority of Commons seats. Having just stood down, they weren't going to use that majority to bring down Salisbury's government immediately. But it meant that the government had that threat forever hanging over its head and essentially continued in office only on Liberal sufferance. Salisbury had to prepare for a general election that couldn't be postponed for long. The only unavoidable delay was to compile new electoral registers, since nearly 3 million voters would be added as a result of the 1884 reform. In the meantime, Salisbury had plenty to do, particularly since he decided to be his own foreign secretary, reprising the role in which he'd made his reputation. Russia was proving troublesome over Afghanistan again, though this time the crisis got resolved by negotiation, without a third Afghan war. Well, for now, at least. Most of Europe was fed up with Britain extending its imperial authority by taking control in Egypt, especially France, which had previously shared influence there, thanks to its role as the main architect of the Suez Canal. Germany's forceful Prime Minister Otto von Bismarck was trying to resuscitate the Three Empire League of Germany, Russia and Austria-Hungary, which particularly annoyed Salisbury, who'd worked hard to make allies of the Austrians. The Queen thought Salisbury was great, which was good for him, though it also meant she felt she could make demands. And within his own party, he still had to deal with the awkward squad led by Randolph Churchill, which kept trying to push him in its own chosen directions on such issues as Ireland. Salisbury would later say that this was a time when he'd had four responsibilities, and not merely the two of being Prime Minister and Foreign Secretary. He'd also had to manage the Queen and Lord Randolph Churchill. But back to the election. It was going to be Ireland that dominated the preparations, above all since a large number of the new voters were Irish, many of them living in England. For the first time, Irish votes were going to be crucial on both sides of the Irish Sea. That, no doubt, was one of the reasons that Salisbury had tolerated the discreet contacts between leading Conservatives and Charles Stuart Parnell's Irish party. He was personally deeply opposed to home rule, as he would make clear to the Queen, in a letter which asserted unequivocally 
that it was not possible for the Conservative Party to tamper with home rule. It suited him, though, not to let it be known in the electorate that this was his position, so he allowed the behind-the-scenes discussions to continue. After all, it would do him no harm to allow some voters to think that he might be growing closer to Parnell's positions. As for Parnell himself, he had grounds for hope for progress with the Conservatives. His most important conversation with a member of the Tory government was with Lord Carnarvon, for many years a close friend and ally of Salisbury's, and the newly appointed Lord Lieutenant of Ireland. Carnarvon made no secret of his openness to the idea of home rule. And there were others that Parnell might win over, most significantly the hold of the other key Irish role, Sir William Hart Dyke, the Chief Secretary for Ireland. Then there was that fine maverick Randall Churchill and his following. It was anyone's guess where he might end up on any question. So Parnell cultivated both major parties as the election approached. His courting of the Conservatives didn't worry Gladstone. On the contrary, it rather suited him that it might be they, and not the Liberals, who brought in Home Rule, just as it had been Disraeli's Conservative government rather than the Liberals, which had enacted the 1867 Reform Act. After all, if a radical measure was proposed by the Tories, a large number of their MPs would be obliged to back it, and since it would always have Liberal support, its chances of passing in the Commons were vastly improved. Besides, to get it through in the House of Lords, Conservative support would be invaluable, since the party had a built-in majority there. Gladstone was therefore quite brusque with approaches from Parnell, often through his great love, Catherine O'Shea, as her husband, Captain O'Shea, was no longer seen by either side as a particularly reliable go-between. Gladstone replied that Parnell should rather work with the existing government, which meant with the Conservatives. They were still in office, though, as results started to come in from the election, it was becoming increasingly clear that they'd be denied their hopeful majority or even victory over the Liberals. These were still the days when elections didn't happen across the whole of Britain on a single day, and this one lasted from the 24th of November to the 18th of December, 1885. Gladstone even followed his own advice to Parnell and made contact with the Tories himself. He saw Arthur Balfour, who was a minister, though not in the cabinet, but had the peculiarly strong position of being the Prime Minister's nephew. Gladstone suggested that since the Tories were still in office while they waited to see just how bad the election would turn out for them, they could still bring in a Home Rule Bill. If they did, he assured them, he'd drum up enough Liberal support to get it passed. The Conservatives reacted with suspicion. They knew that Home Rule was a divisive issue in both main parties. That might well split the Tories just as repeal of the Corn Laws had under Peel 40 years earlier. If anyone's party was going to split, they'd far rather it was the Liberals. Besides, as I said before, though they were keeping their cards close to their chests... There was no appetite for home rule among leading Conservatives, including above all Salisbury himself, the leader and Prime Minister. Then Gladstone's son Herbert, himself also a Liberal MP, intervened and seemed to confirm Salisbury's suspicions. On the 17th of December 1885, the day before the elections ended, the press published an astonishing revelation based on briefings by Herbert. It was known as the Harden Kite, after his father's home at Harden in Wales, on the English border, 
and after a kite flown to gauge, or perhaps to provoke, reactions. The Palmal Gazette, for instance, reported, Mr Gladstone has definitely adopted the policy of home rule for Ireland, and there are well-founded hopes that he will win over the chief representatives of the moderate section of the party to his views. Lord Spencer is practically convinced that no other policy is possible, and his authority as the minister who has governed Ireland during a most troubled time is unimpeachable. The article claimed that Gladstone had decided that this was the only long-term solution to the Irish difficulties. It added that he thought enough Liberals would follow him, but that if they or the Tory majority in the Lords prevented passage of the bill, he would simply call for a new general election, since he was convinced the country would back his drive for home rule. Now the flag of home rule was firmly nailed to Gladstone's mast. The Tories had no need to accept Gladstone's overtures. Instead, they could sit back and spectate as the Liberals tore themselves apart over the issue. Because tear themselves apart, they certainly would. Here was the press suggesting that Gladstone was announcing, without consulting anyone else, that if he formed the government, he'd march it directly towards home rule for Ireland, and he expected so-called moderate Liberals to follow him. What's more, he was threatening them that if they didn't, he'd inflict another election on them, in which the electorate might punish them for their reticence. That sounded like blackmail, and people don't like being blackmailed. Lord Hartington, who as a great Whig nobleman was certainly one of the more moderate, not to say more conservative, leaders of the Liberal Party, felt that granting home rule was going too far towards conciliating the Irish. He was also the man who'd led the Liberals when Gladstone had apparently gone into retirement in the late 1870s, only to come surging back to push Hartington aside again. You can imagine that, however hard he'd struggled to remain loyal, Hartington could hardly have avoided feeling some resentment over that treatment. Now he made it clear to his boss that he wouldn't be following him down the home rule line, and he could count on the backing of a significant number of other Whig Liberals. On the opposite wing of the party, there was trouble among radicals, too. Joseph Chamberlain revealed that his radicalism might go a certain distance towards accommodating the Irish, such as allowing proper local government, but stopped a long way short of home rule and the restoration of a parliament to Dublin. To what extent was Gladstone himself behind his son's kite? There is little evidence to say it he was. Over the holiday period that followed it, Gladstone, at Harden, indulged his great hobby, fenning trees, but he was accompanied by two other sons, and not Herbert. However, Herbert joined the family gathering soon enough, and Gladstone recorded in his diary his pleasure at having the whole family together for Christmas. It seems, at the very least, that he wasn't too put out by his son's action in launching the kite. Meanwhile, the election had ended. It delivered a dramatic result. I mentioned in chapter 141 that the Reform Act brought in by the Liberals would do them no good in Ireland, and indeed they were wiped out there, losing all 15 parliamentary seats they'd previously held and winning none. Of their previous 23 seats, the Conservatives clung on to 16, mostly in the northeastern province of Ulster, where Home Rule was least popular. The Irish Parliamentary Party, on the other hand, had soared. 
they added 22 seats to their previous holding of 63, giving them 85 out of 103 Irish MPs. Time for a little nostalgia. Way back in the 1960s, my inspirational history teacher at school, Ted Fitch, taught us about Parnell and the 86 of 86. Now you might be thinking, if the election took place in 1885 and Parnell won 85 seats, why don't we talk about the 85 of 85? Well, because the new parliament didn't meet until 1886, and as well as his 85 wins in Ireland, Parnell took one English seat in Liverpool. So it was the 86 of 86. That number mattered. There were 670 seats in the House of Commons. A majority therefore required at least one seat more than 335. Including two independent Conservatives, Salisbury's party had 249. Add in Parnell's 86, and if the two worked together, they'd have exactly 335. One seat short of a majority, though also denying a majority to Gladstone. The Liberals had come out on top with 331 seats, including 11 independent Liberals and one so-called Lib Lab MP. That's a member representing working class or Labour interests, but sitting as a Liberal. Gladstone had beaten the Tories, but was a long way short of a majority. On the other hand, if he could count on Parnell's group to support him, and he could keep a grip on his own Liberal MPs, which might prove a tall order, he could form a government. Time was running out for Salisbury. With the hardened kite flown, Gladstone was now firmly identified with Home Rule. Maybe it was time for Parnell to stop flirting with the Tories and help Gladstone back into office. All he had to do was throw his weight behind a Liberal Party committed to the goal he'd been pursuing for so long. Except that, sadly, that commitment was far from total. As we'll discover next week. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>